Welcome to Fast Forward, presented by Commotion, your regular glimpse into the future of urban mobility. As always, I'm your host, Greg Lindsay, Director of Strategy for Commotion, and I'm joined once again by Jonah Bliss, the VP of Media and Marketing for Commotion Global. Welcome back, Jonah. Hey, Greg, and, and very excited to be joined by yet another person uh, later on this episode, Mark Hogue, uh, who sort of runs Hogan Co., which is a future mobility strategy firm. And uh, given just how interesting the future is looking right now, I think he's going to be a good guest. I was going to say we've made it. We have made it to the other side of the U.S. presidential election. And while at, this, at the moment of this taping, you will be listening to this at some point in the future, at this moment, uh, Vice President Biden has not yet been declared the winner, although obviously the vote counts continue to trend in his favor. Um, but yeah, given the fact that there's already leaks coming out of the Senate about who he will allow, Vice President Biden will be allowed to pick for his cabinet and what the Senate will approve, it appears to be safe to say that a peaceful-ish transfer of power is underway. So let's be optimistic about it. And hopefully this will not be completely obsolete by the time you listen to it, listeners. How, uh, but Jonah, how, how many tabs do you still have open, Greg? <laughs> I, all the tabs, all the vote counts, all the time. Um, but yes, some, some, it's not even doom scrolling at this point. It's hope scrolling. So at least we have that going for us. But, Feels weird. But yeah, Jonah, I, how, how do you feel about it? Obviously, we had last week at this time, we had a, we had a, a, a commotion live session where we talked about you know, what the next four years would look like. Obviously, the theme of commotion LA this year is a new deal for mobility, but it looks like it's going to be a pretty squeezed deal here if the Democrats fail to win the Senate, which it appears at this moment in time, given uh, the runoff conditions in Georgia, that final control of the Senate will not be settled till January as a result of not one, but two different special Georgia elections. So lots in flux. But yeah, how are you feeling here about mobility in America? Uh, I'm feeling like uh, every remote worker should temporarily move to Georgia. Um, <laughs> you know, get that registration in just in time. December 7th, folks. Not like I've memorized the registration deadline, but December 7th. Um, but I, I mean, I'm, I'm feeling, you know, better than I have in a while. I, I wish I could say I felt even better, better. But, you know, I've gone down from like 10 news tabs open to five. So that's a sign of some sort of relief. But no, I mean, I'm excited to talk about which local measures passed. I think that's really going to be the name of the game uh, the next four years is, you know, some incremental change from the federal level. At least things won't get worse. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe we can buy off Mitt Romney with some sort of massive uh, <laughs> automotive factory in Utah or something to, to make uh, EVs. But um, I, it's, you know, it's, it's good to not be bad. <laughs> to well, make a well, simple uh, truism. Well, I take a, uh, some objection to that because things will get worse in the immediate short term. By the time by the time this podcast drops, you know the Senate will be back in session on November 9th. and you know already the talk is of a so-called skinny stimulus. Like you know, there's still huge wrangling over block grants to the cities and the states to bail them out and bailing out transit America. So you know, it's safe to say, as we saw on election day with the referendums, we'll cover. Uh, no one's coming to save cities. They're going to have to save themselves. So, and, and a handful did. Just like in 2016, we had, had the massive Measure M pass in Los Angeles uh, and other referendums around the country. There were a few this time around as well. So let's take it from the top, Jonah. What's, what was our biggest uh, big push for transit in America? I think the, the big news of the week is, of course, out of Austin, Texas. Uh, you know, Texas, which in general sort of shifts a little bluer than some might have expected, although not as much as uh, the... <laughs> People, polling suggested yeah. polling that was wrong across the board. But yeah. yeah, but Proposition A in Austin, um, which was what, I think $7.5 billion for transit, uh, which is pretty big money for a city that's still not that humongous. 
um, includes two you know, light rail lines, a downtown tunnel, an extension to an airport, which you know, trans experts will say you shouldn't do first, but people love. Um, it's, it's, I mean, pretty big because they've got a pretty mixed history of, of these things out there, don't they? Well, I was going to say, it's a very interesting one because we've had past podcast guests, uh, Aaron Hafkenshiel, who worked in Mayor David Briley's administration in Nashville. I mean, that's a similar similar size referendum package and a similar size city in a way, right? Another state capital, major university in the Sun Belt, huge millennial attraction, big traffic congestion. And Nashville's failed two years ago, partly due to like some of the dark Koch brothers money that was being used against it. So yeah, all eyes were on Austin. That was one of the next big Sun Belt packages to pass. And uh, after Houston voted to expand uh, transit last year, and they did it. So, you know, kudos to them. And it'll be interesting to see what the, what message this sends to further sort of Sunbelt expansion. But we'll come to one of the one of the loss one of the one of the entries in the loss column in just a little bit there. Yeah. But and I, and I just will say, I mean, it's interesting because um, you know, in Austin they've been trying to do this for a while, right? In 2000 and 2014, they had two different failed referenda. Those were actually smaller amounts of money. Um, and I think actually 2014 one was interesting because some pro-trans people came out against it and thinking it just wasn't like a good alignment and so in a way they've been vindicated but yeah i mean you're absolutely right this has sort of been late to the party because you know dallas and houston have had light rail trains for years now and, and austin the supposedly liberal part of the state has been sorely lacking indeed well i was saying then then one of the other winners is of course seattle which uh you know, if you love transit in America, you might as well move to Seattle. The only, I think, one of two cities uh, in the country that's actually seen growth and ridership over the years. And, you know, smart policy after smart policy. They passed a $7 billion uh, referendum of their own, I believe. That was the number back in 2016 to expand their light rail service. So, yeah, what did they do this time around? Yeah. Yeah. And in Seattle, it's been interesting because, yeah, they've had all these pro-transit measures. But then there's also been some contention around, like, the, the car tab. So, kind of money comes and goes. Uh, and so I think they'd recently lost a little bit of money because of one of those battles, but now city basically voted to restore that uh, through the Seattle Transportation Benefit District, uh, which will basically go back to beefing up frequent bus service, which has really been the heart of Seattle's success story. You know, they don't have a lot of trains, at least not yet. It's just express buses, you know, bus lanes, BRT. Uh, so it really shows that, you know, good bus service combined with some choke points, water, bridges, et cetera, can actually get people taking trains of downtown. Yeah, good stuff. And then what? We have one more. Uh, Caltrain. Caltrain has been yeah. saved. <laughs> Caltrain has been saved. Yeah, I, I can recall us worrying about it a few months ago. Oh, poor but, Caltrain. Uh, measure RR, which I don't know if that was just cutesy, the railroad measure. <laughs> Love it. It's lost. like buying them all a monopoly there. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, One-eighth of a cent sales tax to basically save it, struggling because it had a, a very high fareback recovery ratio, and now, of course, no one's writing it. And then it got caught in all sorts of sticky Bay Area local politics over who got power. So for a while, it didn't seem like this was even going to make it onto the ballot. But uh, it did, and people voted to keep it. So, yay. Well, all right. Well, that's good. So, all right. So now, now the now the the downside. So, uh, who failed here? It who sounds like it sounds failed? it sounds like Seattle's <laughs> rival there in the Northwest was not so transit uh, friendly this time around. Yeah, I I mean, yeah. Hopefully, no one's going to skewer over me for this, but I don't think Portland. I think Portland gets too much credit. You know, I mean, they have like a cute little LRT network of dinky toy trains that go like 15 miles per hour at surface grade, and so. Voters had a $5 billion package on, on the ballot just now, uh, which it, you know, would have been a mixed bag. It was you know, roadway 
stuff too, but there was also a lot of transit in it. And uh, it was funded largely through a payroll tax. Of course, Nike and Intel and all the big businesses out there turned against it. And uh, it failed pretty spectacularly. I think it was like 43% people voted for it. So uh, Oregon's yeah. green because there's trees, but not necessarily green for anything else. That's a bummer. It's like it's like I, we, we need to make more of a singles reference, right? Like people love their cars, Jonah. I mean, obviously it's Seattle, but Seattle got over that. Portland, not so much there. Kimball Scott still trying to get that train train pass but but the other one that failed yeah exactly but the the other one that failed that was that that, uh, that's near and dear to my heart is Gwinnett County outside of Atlanta so you know Gwinnett County is a fascinating example there of of repeated failure and if you know the whole history of Atlanta you know you know the locals some locals refer to MARTA of course as moving Africans rapidly through Atlanta derisively where they have voted to vote down you know to to underfund transit throughout the region partly to keep people out and um, and yeah, and Gwinnett County is you know one of the most diverse counties in America, and went blue for the first time in 2016. And they had a spectacular failure of a multi-billion-dollar referendum called Tsplos that would have expended expend, extended transit then. And so this was, this margin was a lot closer this time, but still it just breaks my heart. And you know, Gwinnett is is really a melting pot of America. There was a great piece in the New York Times Magazine just this past weekend, uh, or yeah, it just came out on you know how coronavirus has affected all of the immigrant workers. Uh, uh, along uh, Beaufort Highway in Gwinnett. And um, and yeah, it would be a massively helpful measure to deal with the congestion as well. And no dice, very no narrow dice. failure. But uh, I know. think, you know, advocates keep trying on this one. It's, it's getting closer in, in the way everything else trending out of Georgia right now. Uh, there might be hope at the end of the, the very, very long tunnel. I would say, Georgia voters, you get two shots at uh, electing senators who can help you uh, get some federal transit dollars. That would be my advice to you. Um, well, speaking also of transportation policy, ultimately it's labor policy, but it ties in the all eyes of the night. We're on California for Prop 22. And Jonah, what happened? Uh, it passed. <laughs> it passed. Uh, it passed with the help of the Obama boys. You know, of course, uh, Anthony Fox, Obama's secretary of transportation, now one of the architects at Lyft, one of the biggest backers of the bill. So, yeah. It tells you a lot Ancient about the state hope. of liberalism in America. But what does it ultimately mean here? Because I, to me, it's not just about obviously creating this third class of worker with, with sectoral bargaining to give it a sort of progressive sheen. But already we're seeing language out of Lyft where like the plan is to make this nationwide. Like this is, this is an attempt to create a national gig, permanent gig labor force. It sounds as ominous as it is to me, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a little scary. Um, you know, hope, hopefully whatever administration emerges, if it's uh Biden-powered can try and get a little ahead of this, but given that these are all Obama people, might not happen. But yeah, I mean, you know, as California goes, so goes the nation. I'll be curious to see how this works in states that don't have you know, referenda processes, initiative processes, but they might just instead really hammer the local legislatures. So I don't know. I mean, it also shows just the power that Uber and Lyft have to connect with their you know, core users. So, you know, Anyone that opened up the app for the last six months, you got bombarded with messages about how you had to vote for this. And I think you know, people are rightfully scared this means that all sorts of companies are going to try and write their own law, which is terrifying. But I think just having that intimate, in-your-hand connection with your customers is something that not necessarily everyone can activate. 
Absolutely. And this, this hammers home, you know, in, in all the talks that I've had with transit agencies over the years of why, despite, you know, the incredible, you know, cost of building your own interface and interacting with your customers, this is exactly the power that they wield. Like it's important for public transit to basically re reestablish that connection. You know, there's uh, there's an incredible power in that. And also like, obviously the, the irony and the ignominy of, of forcing their gig workers, you know, uh, to basically carry that message and for, and asking them every time they open the app to basically vote for the proposition. So I don't know. There's a lot. There's a lot to be scared of in there. But as always, remember, Jonah. Like you know, innovation is one part inspiration and uh, 99 parts regulatory arbitrage. So proving that once again. Put so. that on my tombstone. There you go. Well, also more bad news out of California. The Brightline West uh, has been postponed. Right? They just simply couldn't find somebody to put up the money for debt. I mean, I don't know if this one's bad news because I never really had this in my gonna happen pile. But uh, yeah, it's um, Brightline West, which is like the fifth renaming of the high-speed train that theoretically will go from Vegas to Victorville and or actual Los Angeles uh, after very briefly saying, hey, it's gonna happen this year. We're breaking ground. We just gotta sell all these bonds. Didn't sell the bonds, uh, which is not shocking because it seemed like there was a lot of ambitious assumptions baked into the return on them. But uh, yeah, the, the project doesn't say it's dead. It's just waiting for more market liquidity. So that could mean anything. <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. Well, you know, what else we got? Any, any bright news that happened besides this? Well, we also well, have one this more. This one depends minute. how you feel about, uh, you know, fare-free transit. But uh, in Cincinnati, a little local story, but the, the streetcar has gone permanently fare-free. Um, you know, streetcars have been one of the sort of, you know, bright spots in terms of public transit construction in the U.S. as of late. Uh, I don't know, you know whether or not they're actually good in terms of moving commuters is debatable. But, uh, you know, if it's just going to be a thing to get people going around your downtown shopping, dining, et cetera, uh, removing those barriers to riding it, especially when the fare box recovery is already terrible, might as well. A bummer. Well, you know, the streetcars, we'll see. They're, they continue to fascinate, and yet they continue to largely in many cities, largely go nowhere or at least go a handful of miles. So we'll see how that <laughs> persists. Well, you know, two-mile tourist loop. Who wouldn't love that? But our last bit of news, you know, it's funny, you know, years ago, I wrote, I wrote an essay about the Nano, you know, the Tata Nano, which, of course, the people's car of India, tiny, an engineering marvel uh, for what it, you know, pressed into such a compact package. And, of course, the Nano pretty much failed, not because it failed as a machine. It failed because Indian consumers wanted bigger cars. But now we have the new Nano of sorts. So who's the contender of creating the electric version? It's, uh, it's the Candy now out of China. Uh, the K27 and the K23 are the really uh, <laughs> sexy named uh, <laughs> little, you know, micro subcompact think, cars think how much money they save on marketing costs by just naming it that there's, yeah, there's, think a, how there's much a poetry save on the badges you know it's yeah. every, every penny counts when you're trying to sell a seven thousand nine hundred ninety nine dollar car which is what they're now saying that after you know them also slashing their costs federal incentives and then california subsidies you someone listening here in california can get an electric car for under eight thousand dollars that is impressive. There, I, you know, I, yeah. What would I, what, what would I spend the rest of my money on? I mean, I, if I budget seventy thousand dollars to buy a light truck and I only spend eight thousand electric car, I just I, think you about just all gotta the get ten of them and just like lash them together. <laughs> That's true. Give them out like candy to friends. That's why it's called candy. <laughs> 
All right. Well, this is an episode about the future, Jonah. So who is our guest this week and, and uh, what are you guys going to get up to? Again, uh, Mark Hogue runs an autonomous vehicle and sort of future mobility strategy company, Hogan Company. He's uh, an all-around sort of expert on the future of autonomy, you know, what's going to happen next in any form of mobility. And so I think given just how much prognostication we need to be doing right about now as, as the crystal ball, crystal ball is cloudy, really just curious to hear what he sees coming ahead in the next four years or so. So listen in. All right, fast forward listeners. Uh, very excited to be joined today by Mark Hogue of Hogue & Co. Obviously, it's been a pretty crazy week, so I'm very curious to hear what uh, he has to say. It's uh, you know a lot of things going on in the world, but uh, mobility, transportation, always a hot topic. So Mark, welcome. Good to have you. I mean, thanks very much for having me, Jonah. Your voice is certainly familiar. Uh, good to have yeah. had you on my podcast, what, a week or so ago, two weeks ago? Uh, you know, time has kind of lost all meaning. So the, the only yes, thing I has. can find comfort in is familiar voices at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well said. How are you holding up up there in uh, NorCal? You know, uh, things are good. Obviously, I think we're all just kind of hanging on with bated breath. I mean, if ever there was a, a cliffhanger of an election, this is surely it. Um Let's just say we're looking forward to it to be officially over. We're looking forward to some clarity. Yeah. So, you know, for listeners, you know, we, we've kind of brought together the world of mobility here on the Fast Forward Show. Mark runs, I think, the world's most popular autonomous vehicle focused podcast. Um, but, you know, Mark, some of our listeners may be a little less on the autonomy side of things. So you know, maybe give them a little bit of background on, on what you do and, and how you got there. So the how I got here a bit is, as I often say, it's a bit pretzel-shaped. Um, to run through it real quickly, I mean, my background, at least academically, I started UCLA as an uh, astrophysics major. Um, I did primarily engineering track, uh, math, science, and even pre-med for basically four years. Yeah, I was on the five-and-a-half-year Van Wilder track, uh, <laughs> quite literally, actually, um, before ultimately wrapping up with econ. Um then went straight to law school, passed the bar exam, fell into the tech startup world of San Francisco, because of course, um, did that for about eight or nine years. Uh, started the podcast about two years ago, due largely to my personal passions for all things automotive generally, but also kind of marrying that to my love of all things science and engineering generally. And of course, AV was that perfect union. Uh, Again, it was just a fun side project, but through that fun side project, I was introduced to some of the most brilliant minds around the world, two of whom decided to embark on this crazy journey with me to launch our firm, Hogan Co., which has now grown to 16 uh, associates around the world. Wow. And so, so long story short, sounds like you're a dork, <laughs> which yep, you know, pretty much fellow, fellow nerd <laughs> over here. I respect that. There you go. Um, there you go. But, but so, so the podcast actually predates the consultancy. That's, that's, you know, that's probably the, the most any podcast has ever produced in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, it is true. I mean, honestly, when I, so when I connected, so it's funny. Uh, so, so both of the partners with whom I joined forces to build this thing. So they had, done podcast episodes with me. So one of whom is Martin Adler, the other of whom is Felix Dohmeyer, uh, both academics through and through. And what started as a almost a sort of a joke, like, hey guys, what do you think about doing this? Uh, very quickly became a very real thing. And that was how many years ago? So we became officially official, uh, what, it's November? So a year ago, 
Ish. Happy birthday. <laughs> Thanks very well, much for From, that, from yeah. one November to uh, even more insane November than the last one. But uh, yeah, seriously. <laughs> and, and so, you know, maybe tell us a little bit about the kind of, you know, projects you guys work on and, and you know, what your kind of uh, lens is. So the high level, of, like, I guess, the, you know, the high level approach to what we're doing is obviously everything autonomous mobility. And we're defining that quite broadly. When I say broadly, uh, some of the first pro- projects that we engaged in involved um, for instance, the impact on the construction and real estate industry of autonomous vehicles. Uh, we've done a lot of work with the insurance space. We have also more recently reconsidered and very happily engaged the startup world, which some folks might sort of wonder what kind of consulting business is there to be had with startups. And as a startup guy, I can personally attest it's true. Consultancy was always kind of a bad, dirty word for startups. But our <laughs> approach is, shall we say, a bit different to the kind of I guess, kind of the typical consulting firm, we really take more of a hands-on kind of almost an in-house team member of sorts approach. Like we don't like to have a distant relationship. We want to be really kind of part of the team. And so to the extent that our team members themselves have, you know, they all come from academic backgrounds. I'm very proud to say that virtually everybody is either already a PhD or a PhD candidate or alternatively an engineer or a startup founder. And a couple of attorneys like me, um, yeah, and some, but, some law cards. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, so the the idea was to take folks who have that academic background, but crucially who also had very real world, you know, real world experience uh, from the business side of things. So to that end, so one of our founders, for instance, Martin Adler, he's one of the leading transport economists of Europe, and he's done a ton of work with various municipal organizations uh, throughout Europe um, and elsewhere. So it's it's a very kind of shall we say business focused application of academia, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, for people that uh, haven't seen your site, uh, you know, hogandco.com, I mean, it's it's both an impressive roster of people you're working with, but also just the geographies that you've covered. So it's really, you know, a lot of people are just very focused, like, oh, we're in California and Florida and you know, maybe Germany, but you guys are, you know, I'm just looking at your list now, but you know, Kampala and Mendoza, you don't see that combination very often. <laughs> you know, you know, it's interesting. Um, I can tell you perhaps unsurprisingly, this was not planned. <laughs> the truth is there, it's such a small space, this industry of all things. And again, we're defining autonomous mobility quite broadly, right? As I said. And, and so, um, yeah, it's, it's a very small space. I mean, everybody seems to know everybody. That said, to find the, shall we say, creme de la creme experts in the space uh, yeah, you kind of literally actually have to search far and wide. Um, and, you know, hence the geographic diversity. On the other hand, that's obviously to our benefit, um, not least of which because every other aspect of the world is approaching this challenge in such totally different ways, right? Yeah, yeah. A lot of different regulatory, a lot of different technical approaches. Mm-hmm. Um, can I ask, I mean, you know, I imagine a lot of your, your research and advice is proprietary, obviously, but is there, you know, something that you've noticed, whether it's, you know, doing research or just your own, you know, very dialed in lens here, like something that you see about autonomy, you know, with the sort of the, the broad application of the word that you think a lot of the world doesn't understand. That's a really good question. Um, huh. I'm trying to figure out how to unpack it into its more granular elements. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I, so let me approach it like this. I think, yeah, I guess there's two different ways to look at this, right? So first is from the, from a, from a business point of view, the marketability of what the heck people are trying to build and to whom they want to sell it. And then there's, of course, the consumer point of view, uh, which I'll get back to in a moment, but suffice to say, this is one of our 
oldest running projects we've been doing for nearly a year now, which is the so-called consumer acceptance study of AVs. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me get to that in a moment. With respect to the business side of things, um, I, I sometimes wonder like, what's really kind of the driving force here? Because you hear everybody talking about, oh, level five this and level five that, which of course defined as these effectively these, these shuttle pods that have no steering wheel. They are for all intents and purposes, not a car anymore, right? If we define a car as a thing that a human can drive, yeah. you delete the steering wheel, not only do delete the notion of here's a thing you drive, but you also, let's face it, you delete that emotional bond between human and machine. But so, and, and so my big concern is that there's such a big push to do that. I mean, if ever there was a, a chicken and egg sort of don't put the cart before the horse situation, this is surely it. Um, I, I really wish the companies would, care less about reaching that sort of holy grail, which admittedly, I want that as much as anybody too, even though I'm a car guy who loves driving. On the other hand, I think the more sort of, shall we say, rational focus should be, let's just work closely with cities and municipalities generally and get level four cars on dedicated roads here and there and call it a day. This is a much more easily attainable goal, Mm -hmm. which segues neatly into my point about consumer acceptance, which is it's going to be a really hard sell to get folks to jump into a car without a steering wheel, let alone, sorry, I misspoke, to get into a car with a steering wheel without a driver. Um, it's a lot easier to get people to get into uh, a thing without any steering wheel at all, because then they don't perceive it as being a car, but rather a train, for instance. Yeah. You know, and, and that's what's really, I think, critical here is because n- never mind the emotional bond that we have culturally, not just here in America, but really throughout much of the world to cars, whether or not one owns a car. Uh, there's this notion that you know you, you really are bound to the thing, and so the question is how do you how do you sever that bond? And with respect to the new technology of autonomous cars, it's not a foregone conclusion that people are going to embrace them. It's not like oh, the first touchscreen iPhones were you know there wasn't really any doubt about this, but now you've got not only have you got the the um, the, the lack of a guarantee of customer acceptance, but you've also got a completely missing legal framework to enable them in the first place. So it's yeah. a really challenging hurdle to overcome on both fronts. And and the stakes are just that much higher. You know, if, if I got an iPhone and I didn't like it and I, you know, I drop it, <laughs> I'm out of grand, that sucks. But it's a little different than something goes wrong or at least perceived to go wrong with a, uh, you know, 2,000 pound moving object. Yeah, although I, I, I won't get too deeply into this unless you really want to. But but on the flip side, I mean, I, I actually have done a bunch of talks on which I've obviously touched on this issue. And the truth is there's something really bizarrely skewed about our tolerance and indeed our acceptance of what is or is not okay insofar as risk to life. Meaning mm-hmm. if you look at vehicle deaths, I think by now it's practically common news headlines everywhere that yes, indeed, in the US alone, we lose something like 40,000 people a, a year due to car accidents, which is like 3,000 a month, which until COVID anyway, that was pretty catastrophically high. Um, as I say, quite sinisterly, that is more or less what we lost during the 9-11 attacks about 19 years ago. So it's a lot of people dying every month due to car accidents, right? Worldwide, it's like a million and a quarter people dying or something. You know, it, it's just, it's it's unbelievably high numbers, 94% of which are caused by human error. I think most people know this now. What's yeah. really shocking though, is that it's the number one non-natural cause of death, even above suicide. And that's weird, yeah. right? Because when you look at things like even school kids are learning, oh, HIV is dangerous and bad, and here's not to do it. And alcoholism is dangerous and bad, and here's why you should avoid it. But nobody talks about this with cars. It's super weird. So that yeah. just means literally, actually, that we as a society are okay with it. 
Yeah, it just becomes the the background noise that we sort of take for granted. We're just the uh, we're the crabs boiling in the pot, and we don't realize it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But no, I mean, I mean, I think I mean you're you're absolutely right. I, I just sort of I wonder, you know, humans, we sort of your know, your status quo bias, we react to something new. So the first time that there is, you know, something new goes wrong, whether or not it's statistically, you know, meaningful. Yeah, there's a reason that plane crashes get more headlines than, as you say, like the thousands of car crashes a day. It just sort of it catches the attention. So it doesn't mean it's going to be mm-hmm. rational or right. But uh, I suppose that's why you're doing this consumer acceptance research. <laughs> well, that's true. Yeah, exactly. And to the point of airplanes, by the way, it's worth mentioning, ironically, that because, I, you know, as I often say, airplane, an airplane at cruising altitude is probably the safest place any human can be within the globe of the Earth. <laughs> I, I remember reading some crazy awesome stat thing a while back that as recently as I think the last two decades, the probability of calculating a dual engine failure on a twin engine jet is essentially zero. I mean, that's yeah, just amazing. And yeah, you know, yeah, we've come a long way. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's incredible. Um, I, so I, I feel like we would be remiss, you know, we're kind of talking a little about the future here. Obviously the, the future is a little bit up in flux right now. Um, you know, it's looking like we're going to, knock on wood, have a Biden presidency, but uh, the Republicans will probably control the Senate still. Um, you know, a lot of people were sort of you know, dreaming of a, if there was a blue wave, a, a Green New Deal. But, you know, I'm thinking that there's still certainly a possibility here of um, some pretty important shifts for what our mobility landscapes happens. And, and it might actually favor more EVs and AVs versus, say, public transit. Uh, you have any thoughts of how, you know, the, the short-term mobility landscape might work out so i i I, uh, say quite transparently i'm you know i never consider myself to be particularly politically minded whatever that means what i can say is and just as an aside for what it's worth i actually ended up down a rabbit hole of research on what i've perceived to be a serious issue with voting generally i was inspired when i learned about the so-called dunning kruger effect which apparently a lot of people knew about except me and (laughs) and i and, and i found out that this then to me is a terrifying issue with what's led to an objective, at least academically objective inability for people to make informed decisions, myself included. I mean, I'm not embarrassed to admit that I've definitely voted incorrectly, objectively so on certain issues. For me, what what concerns me about politics and the direction, you know, regardless which way somebody chooses to lean, at the end of the day, I just have a I find it perverse to think that politics should drive science rather than the other way around. So whether you're talking about, you know, for example, uh, moving away from internal combustion engines to electric vehicles, whether you're talking about Mm -hmm. moving to a world of autonomous vehicles, which presupposes, which necessitates a car sharing or which is just sort of a fancy word for transit, let's face it, sort of a world, (laughs) at the end of the day, um, there are certain things that must be so even if you don't like it. And for me, this is, I think, one of the most important lessons I've just happened to stumble across in the last 10 years or so, if not even, maybe even my entire life, is this notion that you can agree with a thing even if you don't like a thing. Certainly. And I think this is something I've certainly kind of failed to recognize most of my life, uh, and then I did recognize it. And I think it's really important that people just try to do that. Like you can be vehemently like almost nauseated or repulsed by a thing, but, but as long as you can objectively wrap your head around and say, Hey, this is, it doesn't matter if I don't like it, this is how it should be. That's, I think a very important thing that people need to learn to do. 
Yeah, sort of a, a common set of shared truths. That doesn't mean that you like that they're so, but just <laughs> you, you acknowledge that you know gravity is real, whether or not you want to fly. <laughs> yeah, and actually speaking of which, I, I like that you use the gravity analogy because uh, as somebody said, gosh, it may have actually been Elon Musk. I don't know, maybe Neil deGrasse Tyson. I don't know. Somebody said uh, recently, uh, you know, uh, you know that a theory, a scientific theory is good enough we can, when you can employ the thing itself to whatever it is you need to do. So for instance, it we clearly understand gravity well enough because look what we can do with it. We can land on the moon, we can land on Mars, we can get a little <laughs> probe out in orbit around Pluto. We clearly know it well enough. Maybe we don't know it well enough to understand what happens right at the event horizon of a black hole, but we're getting there. But for everyday stuff, <laughs> it's pretty well understood. It, it does feel like we're getting straight to the event horizon of the black hole sometimes. Well, um, <laughs> that's true. Um, but no, I, I think, I mean, yeah, that's that's a, very well said that uh, it, it kind of belies some sort of just common understanding of it that you can just make do with it. Um, on a little bit more of an optimistic note, you know, I, I'd love it if you could maybe explain to our readers, you know, what's your own sort of vision for the future of mobility and and, and you know, what is what is a better world of transportation look like to you, Mark? Well, for starters, one in which people aren't just dropping dead every day <laughs> from car accidents. I mean, you know, you optimist. But, but it, well, no, no, but well, I mean, they would be super it's super optimistic to imagine that world where that doesn't happen, right? Um, like so so for me, I think that that optimistic vision is basically one in which, first of all, obviously it's clean transportation, because again, the notion that we and by the way, speaking of clean transportation, I think it's worth mentioning. That's another thing, I, and this is why I try to stay out of politics. That's another thing I just don't really understand, which is even if somebody doesn't subscribe to the science around human-caused pollution and climate change and so on and so forth, don't people just like to walk outside and just breathe fresh air? <laughs> like, even if you don't subscribe to the man-caused, you know, human-caused pollution, just fresh air is nice, right? So, yeah, you'd um, think that'd be one of those common truths we can accept. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I guess that's that's missing as well. But regardless, so look, it's going to have to be clean transit. It's going to be autonomous to save lives. And But again, to the point of car sharing, it's going to have to be the case that we do move away from this notion of private car ownership, which is a funny thing to say, considering that, well, we are already 94-ish, 96-ish percent removed from car ownership in the sense that we don't actually use our cars I think 96% of the time, right? So in a yeah. funny sort of a way, there's really only 4% that we have to work on there. <laughs> and when you look at it like that, and you imagine a future not that far from now, the idea that we're allowed to drive these things around in the first place is as absurd as the idea that we would be still riding horses on the street. Now, obviously, we'll still enjoy these things for fun and for sports, but, you know, it doesn't make sense beyond this interim period of history that we're stuck now. And what's really cool about this stuff, though, is the extraordinary freedom this opens up to so many people in so many ways, whether you're talking about people who are unable or otherwise unwilling to drive a car with respect to commute. If we ever get back to a commuting state of world of life again due to COVID, I don't know, uh, you know, the fact that you can more easily commute, which effectively means it won't have this negative stigma associated with it because it won't really be a commute anymore. There's yeah. just so many profound life enhancements that this will offer. It's kind of a foregone conclusion in that respect, objectively. Yeah, yeah. As long as we can, yeah, bring people kicking and screaming out of the status quo. But no, yeah, that, that ninety-something percent utilization rate. That's you know, back when I worked in car sharing, that was one that we always hammered home. And it's like, even if you love cars, you have to admit that 
most of the time it's just sitting in a expensive garage or parking space somewhere and uh, just collecting dust at best. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which, by the way, if you do love cars, that's got to hurt. <laughs> yeah. you know, that's a yeah. miserable thing to re- to think about. That oh, my poor car is sitting there. Just yeah, exactly. Dust. It'd be as if you had a yeah, your 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 Mona Lisa's in the museum, but no one can look at it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, well, Mark, um, I think this has been a, a fun little chat. Uh, anything else you want to you know, let our audience know before uh, we, we head into another week? You know, I, I think just uh, in the words of one of my partners, Martin Adler, maybe just disconnect from the news for a bit. Don't let it drive you mad. Uh, it is Friday. Enjoy the weekend. I don't know when you're publishing this. Whenever it's published, uh, try to disconnect. For <laughs> it'll bit, it'll be Monday. So, but, but, okay, well, but disconnect if you listen to this at night. <laughs> in any event, yeah, just try to disconnect for a bit, I think. Take a deep breath. <laughs> exactly, exactly. All right. Thank you, Mark. Uh, it was a pleasure chatting with you as always. Thank you, Jonah. My pleasure. Take care. Well, that was a nice change of pace, Jonah. That was so optimistic. And and there's going to be plenty more optimism at Commotion LA Live, right? (laughs) Nothing but optimism. I mean, it's definitely, it's going to be four years to watch. Uh, I'm I'm excited, of course, about our opening panel event for New Year's in the U.S. and the world, which is all about this uh, very important topic. I don't know. What, What are you looking forward to, Greg? Well, I am. I'm looking forward to the forward thrust of this. I mean, as I said at the outset here, it's going to be interesting to see with, that if uh, Vice President Biden does seal the deal in the Electoral College, what he can do for America's transportation policy over the next four years. But um, I'm I'm mostly excited the fact that we, you know, will have a new deal for mobility as our theme, and not uh, a new deal again as our theme, perhaps. Um, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to our sessions on uh, proximity city, thinking through what the, what the 15 minute city concept means for, you know, and how mobility is a key piece of that and thinking about how we move uh, post COVID. Um, remember, there is a pandemic still going on for, uh, for our non-American viewers. And um, yeah, I don't know, in general, just seeing our tribe again, you know, I wish we could be back in LA. I, I, miss, uh, I miss those after parties on the standard rooftop, but you know, I'm sure Bizabo will be the next best thing. What's a party? <laughs> I don't know. I haven't seen other people in eight months, Joda. But, you know, it's good. It's going to be a good time. Um, well, with that, listeners, that brings us to the end of another episode of, uh, of Fast Forward. Thank you so much for, for uh, joining. We're just two weeks away now uh, to Commotion LA Live. And so, yeah, we're over 2,000 attendees. Uh, we're going to have all sorts of workshops. We just sent a reminder here to sign up for those of you who are eligible. And if not, ask for invites to attend many of the great hands-on virtual sessions we're going to have as well. So if you are craving the kind of interaction with other people that Joan and I so clearly are, you'll find plenty of it in our workshop portions. November 17th and 19th. See you then. Yeah, head on over and register. Uh, On that note, it's been a pleasure. Thank you all for joining us. Join us next week for another episode and take care.